Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. We're staying this week with the story we've been covering on the podcast for the past couple of weeks because it is impossible to take one's eyes off it, and that, of course, is the US presidential election. I'm joined on the line once again by our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. Um, Suzanne, where are you today, by the way? Yeah, I just arrived last night, Chris, uh, in Arizona, actually. Um, I'm just getting on the road at the moment, getting out to some states that uh, promise to be kind of interesting states on November the 3rd. So um, I'm in Phoenix, that's the main city in Arizona, and um, the kind of suburban metro area around the city is the, by far the biggest county in this state. And uh, Arizona is one of those states where it's been Republican for years, but Democrats are hoping uh, that it may turn blue, as they say, this year, and that Donald Trump is proving pretty unpopular among a lot of people in the suburbs, a lot of women in the suburbs here. So you can read more about it um, <laughs> when I've uh, written a, a piece from here on, on, on Texas as well. I'm, I'm going to go to because there's interesting things in these, what they're called, Sunbelt states. Great. And we look forward to discussing in more detail over the next week or two those stories you're covering on the ground. Today, of course, we'll be focusing on the coronavirus outbreak at the White House and the latest developments concerning Donald Trump. But we might start, Suzanne, with the latest set piece event in the election campaign. And that was last night's Wednesday night's debate between the vice presidential candidates, Mike Pence and Kamala Harris. Who came out on top in that debate? Yeah, look, I think both candidates would be pretty happy with how it went. Um, I think Kamala Harris probably did have the edge. And in a way, she had more to prove, in a sense, because she's not as well known to the American people, apart from people, you know, in the Washington bubble, people in California. Um, she is still something of an unknown quantity. Whereas, of course, Mike Pence has been vice president for the last four years. Uh, so in that sense, I think she's going to be uh, quite happy with how she performed. She was poised. She was controlled. Um, she was very strong on, on issues like coronavirus. Um, she tried to kind of build up a rapport with the audience and talk directly to American people, just as Joe Biden had done the previous week. But then Mike Pence also, you know, relatively speaking, um, performed well. Uh, he was quite strong on some issues, like the economy, for example, like taxation. I thought he had some good one-liners on that. And he will be happy that he uh, managed uh, to mention the word, for example, Green New Deal, I think 15 times during the 90 minutes. Um, so that message that Democrats are a party of left-wing socialists, if you like, uh, he got that across. Um, so, yeah, I think they'll both be quite happy with how they performed. You mentioned that Kamala Harris is something of an unknown quantity. And it is remarkable, even at this stage of the campaign, how little we've seen of her, isn't it? Why is that, do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think she's been relatively low profile. Now, that may be because the news agenda here, as everyone knows, has been so relentless uh, over the last few weeks, even before Donald Trump's coronavirus diagnosis, we had uh, the story about his tax returns from the New York Times. And we had the, the really huge story, which was the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the battle over her successor. So to that extent, you know, the main networks here are not really covering it uh, that much. She is going out of the campaign trail. She's been to different uh, states, to Florida, um, to Arizona. She's going to, to she's been to Michigan. Um, one of the issues, though, it has to be said, is that the Biden campaign are very strict about access. It's quite difficult, particularly to get anywhere near Joe Biden. The pool traveling with them are extremely small. So we're not having see we're not seeing these big events with a crowd. They're just not happening on the on the Biden side. So I think that's one of the issues, too. But it, it is it is very much the case that I think there was such a lot of fanfare around her nomination back in August. Um, but, yeah, she has been taking a little bit more of a backseat. 
uh, the debate will have changed that to an extent and also the forthcoming uh, confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett. She is a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, so she will be one of the senators questioning Coney, Amy Coney Barrett. And that is likely to be a, you know, a live televised event, which will up her profile, I think. And I do want to ask you in a moment, Suzanne, for an update on that story, where that process is at in terms of the, the confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett. But since we spoke last week, we had that momentous story of President Donald Trump and the First Lady Melania both testing positive for COVID-19. We had Trump's hospitalisation and return to the White House. Our listeners would be familiar with all of that. And, and, and then the spreading of the virus through the White House with one positive case after another. Now, we don't know yet exactly what the president's state of health is, despite his own... Um, declaration, if you like, that he's been cured of, of the disease. But as things stand now, how would you assess the political ramifications of everything that's happened in the past week? Well, I suppose, I mean, it's really an extraordinary turn of events, uh, even by the standards of the Trump presidency. In the first instance, I think it's safe to say that um, this has resulted in the issue of coronavirus coming right back to the centre of this debate. Now, in one sense, it was always here. America, like the rest of the world, is in the midst of a global pandemic. But I think in the last few weeks, you know, there's been the story about, as I say, Donald Trump's tax returns, which I know are, are was negative for him. But the, the story kind of moved on from COVID. We had the Supreme Court justice. Republicans were trying to trying to get away from and the issue of COVID. And there was a sense, I think, among maybe news organisations and maybe some residents across America of COVID fatigue in terms of covering this as a story. So this was exactly what the Trump campaign did not need. Now, this was obviously a way that Donald Trump could have turned around his um, his response and his performance on coronavirus. Polls have shown that most Americans do not approve of the way he's handled his coronavirus, even Republicans, and particularly Republicans over 65, which could be a real problem for Donald Trump in the election. So this is his opportunity maybe to, um, you know, say, look, a bit of a Damascus moment. I've been touched by COVID. I feel your pain. I'm going to get through it and let's follow the science. As we know in the last week, he has not done that. He has, in fact, become more defiant about minimising COVID effectively. And in the number of videos that he has posted, um, first of all from the hospital and then when he returned to the White House, um, you know, he urged Americans not to let COVID dominate their lives and, you know, and we'll get through this and showed a complete lack of empathy for the families of the hundreds of thousands of Americans who have died from COVID. And of course, who did not have the access to healthcare that he did as the president. And of course, we're in a country where the uh, divisions on healthcare are just so profound. Um, so there's that whole part of things. Um, in terms of how it's going to affect the election, we are beginning to see some polls on this. Um, and they're, they're worrying for, for Trump. Biden has widened his lead uh, over Trump nationally. Um, now, of course, as we've spoken about before, and maybe we'll get back to next week, you know, it's not about the national, you know, Biden can win this election by way more than Hillary Clinton and get a lot more votes, but he could still lose presidency because it's about how he does in, in certain states. But it is absolutely the case um, that he is underperforming. So we've had some polls that looked at Florida and Pennsylvania, two of the key swing states, states and um uh, Biden has increased his poll very, very much in, in those states. So that's very worrying uh, for Trump. Uh, we saw a little bit more of an effort for him to be contrite, um, a little bit more empathetic in the video he posted on Wednesday, um, where he said, look, I want to have the this cure for every American. You should all have what I have. But again, there was so much, it was so many much, it was so problematic on so many levels because he talked about having the cure and 
this treatment that he took, Regeneron, A, it's not clear if that has cured him, and B, it's only on trials, you know, it hasn't been approved by the FDA, and Regeneron itself said there are not going to be that many doses available. And so obviously lots of problems there. Um, but no, he's been as defiant as ever, and I think this could be a real, real big problem for him now so close to the election. I think, you know, just I'm beginning to talk to people out on the vote, on, on the campaign, and I and they're really feeling it. They do not understand how and why he responded in this way to his own diagnosis. You mentioned Florida Florida there, Suzanne, and it is worth reflecting on that particular state for a moment, isn't it? Because if Trump is hurting himself among the over 65s, as you said, um, that could really damage him in Florida, which is a state he really needs to win. Exactly. Um, Florida was one, um, was a state uh, that... Donald Trump really has a shot at, and he still does, because it's um, it's always, I mean, people remember 20 years ago with um, Al Gore versus uh, George Bush, and, and and the whole election went down to um, some some disputed votes in, in a county in Florida. And it's still very much a swing state, and Republicans are very strong, particularly in the northern part of the state. Um, but uh, the poll I mentioned yesterday, the, you know, there was a Quinnipiac uh, University poll that showed that Joe Biden has widened his lead over the president by 11 points in the state. So that's very worrying for for Trump. Now, there are no danger zones for Biden in Florida because um, Biden, according to a lot of polls, and this is going back a couple of weeks, has been quite, he hasn't been performing that well among a lot of the Hispanic community. Um, And I know myself from covering the primary campaign early this year in places like Nevada and California, uh, Bernie Sanders got a big, chunk of the Latino vote, not Joe Biden. So he's always kind of had problems there because traditionally people might think, oh, the Hispanic vote votes Democrat. But this is particularly the case in Florida, huge number of Hispanic voters. But a lot of those Hispanic voters who have, uh, you know, who are Cuban immigrants or now increasingly Venezuelan, um, you know, first generations or have, have moved to Florida are very, they're, they're so anti-socialism because of the experience in their own country that they tend to vote Republican. So, you know, um, the the Biden campaign actually has been been put in a lot of resources and that's all down more south in the Miami-Dade area and so it'll be an interesting one to watch but absolutely uh, if he is losing support among seniors that is a big issue in a state like Florida where I think maybe one in five voters are seniors so many people retired to Florida from all over the country and so yeah warning a warning sign I think it's one of the most negative findings that we have seen for the Trump campaign this week. Now when Trump um was diagnosed with COVID-19 last week, one of the first things Biden and the Democrats did was to call off the suspend attack ads on Trump, if you like. Um, Trump was certainly back in attack mode himself uh, yesterday and began once again referring to Sleepy Joe and calling him a wacko and so on. So I presume the gloves are off now again on both sides. Yes, exactly. Um, Trump, Joe Biden had instructed his campaign to take down some of the negative ads, but he still has been campaigning a bit. And I suppose this is a problem for Joe Biden because in a sense, we now are going to have, I I think, a big battle about the next uh, presidential debate, which is scheduled to take place in Miami. But Joe Biden, it's not as if he's been, you know, he was potentially exposed to Trump on the debate stage last week, but he has been holding events. You know, he he didn't stop campaigning, so he has been out and about. So I think that's an issue for him. But I do expect uh, both sides uh, to be back into this battle. 
Um, now, Joe Biden, you know, has spoken about how he's praying for the president and the first lady. But he also spoke in the early days after Trump's diagnosis about the importance of listening to science and the importance of mask wearing and saying this should not be a political issue. Um, so, yeah, I do expect uh, a lot more heated debate. And, and we're seeing as well, I mean, it's worth mentioning with Trump off the campaign trail. Now, we're seeing his uh, his family playing a big role. We mentioned Florida there. The Trump sons, Eric and Donald Trump Jr., I think they're going to be in Florida this week campaigning, for example. Ivanka Trump has been out doing a lot of fundraising. Um, so, you know, I think we get the sense, even from Trump's series of tweets he's sending from the White House, which is now pretty much deserted, the press area has been fumigated, etc., that Donald Trump is itching to get out, itching to have a rally, itching to go and meet supporters that he, you know, he thrives off this kind of energy. But as I say, his family seem to be acting as surrogates in that regard at the moment. Now, they had a very ill-tempered debate in Cleveland last week and we're due to face off again in Miami next Thursday. There have been some developments in that story just before we began this conversation, Suzanne. Can you bring us up to speed on that? Yes, well, um, the, it was interesting because at the end of the vice presidential debate on Wednesday night in Salt Lake City, the moderator said, and, you know, you can join us for the next debate on October the 15th in Miami. So that immediately suggested that it was going to take place. Then on Thursday, the organisers, which is the Commission on Presidential Debates, announced that it was going to to uh, have an online only, a virtual debate because of health concerns about the coronavirus. But very quickly, Donald Trump was interviewed on Thursday morning on Fox Business uh, from the White House. So he's back into the kind of calling in. He tends to do this in morning uh, TV shows on Fox News. He did that on Thursday morning and he he said he, he rejected this. He said, no, I'm not going to waste my time on a virtual debate, he said. And he said, it, you know, debating is not about that. It's ridiculous to sit behind a computer and basically it's not acceptable to us. So this is really now, you know, set up yet another conflict uh, between the two candidates. Um, the Commission on Presidential Debates is an independent body. It was set up in 1987 and it kind of runs these debates every year and it sets out the rules um, and both teams are consulted when it's setting out the rules and the certain there's certain guidelines they must use and a certain you know amount of time is allocated to each question, etc. But in saying that, you know, there's no law saying that the presidential candidates must debate. It's obviously been being a part of American political culture for so long. But I mean, here's Trump again, just taking something that's an accepted norm and upending it again. So I don't know. And it's quite interesting this morning, the uh, Trump campaign put out a statement where they basically called it and said, um, oh, they're bailing out Joe Biden. They're accusing the presidential debate of bending to Joe Biden's will on this, saying that Joe, the Biden campaign wants a virtual campaign and that's going to aid Biden. They're still insisting that Trump won the first debate, um, uh, the one um, a, a week ago, even though polls showing that most voters were really turned off by Trump's performance then. So it's also difficult, I think, because the Commission on Presidential Debates also, I think, is facing some questions anyway, Firstly, about the whole um, logistics around that first debate between Trump and Biden, because uh, as we now know, Trump, a couple of days later, tested positive for coronavirus. Members of the Trump family did not wear their masks as they were, had been told to in the debate, on the debate, in the, in the foyer, in the audience that night. Um, and so there are questions about, you know, why those rules weren't enforced. There's also question marks just to kind of get back about, you know, the vice presidential debate between Harris and um, Mike Pence. You know, there's been a lot of support for the uh, moderator, Susan Page. But at the same time, you know, the, the uh, both candidates were allowed, frankly, to completely ignore uh, her questions. And they did not give substantive or any even any reference 
to her questions and some of the more contentious uh, questions. So I think, you know, there are maybe questions about that. Um, so I don't know how this is going to play out. At the moment, they are talking about having a virtual event. You'd have some split screen idea. And this second debate was always going to be different. It was more of a presidential town hall, as they call it here, which would have seen questions from the audience. So one can imagine, you know, you could do that quite well virtually. You know, you take the next question from whoever in Miami and then both candidates answer it. Um, so look, it's, it's going to be another battle. We also have a third debate on October the 22nd. So we don't know what's the plan for that presumably Donald Trump um will be you know will have been tested will have been out of his um supposed self-isolation period at that point that's due to take place in Nashville just very closely before uh, the election itself so look another battle ahead and I think this is going to dominate now attention in Washington for the next few days you can see why Trump would be averse to a, an online virtual debate can't you really because he the format I can imagine wouldn't suit him. He likes he brings his full personality into the studio, and and you know we remember him stalking Hillary Clinton last the last time around, yes. walking around behind her and so on. Um, so I guess it's understandable that particular format doesn't really suit him. Yeah, um, and of course we saw in the first debate that his strategy was one of constant interruption, of talking over Joe Biden, of not letting him finish, and Joe Biden also you know took part in some name calling of his own uh, towards Donald Trump. Now, last night, you know, Susan Page, a moderator, did say to the two vice presidential candidates, look, we want a debate that's lively, but the American people also deserve a discussion that is civil. And that did seem to keep things on track last night. And it was much more uh, measured, slow paced um, and polite, quite frankly. In saying that about Donald Trump, I mean, one would wonder because he obviously has this experience as a TV man. He's used to the cameras. You know, he knew how to create a business model through The Apprentice and how he he performs well in many ways in front of the camera. So, and we've seen him use his podium in the Rose Garden or in the White House press room to kind of give mini campaign rallies. So, you know, is this a wise decision? If if the Commission on Presidential Debates um, doesn't back down on this and there is no second debate, well, then that might actually benefit Biden um, because, you know, Biden, a bit like Harris last night, I think is just trying to play it safe, let Donald Trump's various erratic, you know, news stories around Trump play out and hope that people will vote to reject him on November the 3rd. So I think it might suit Biden campaign quite well if this doesn't happen at all. Now, aside, Suzanne, we come back to the Amy Coney Barrett nomination to the Supreme Court um, to fill the vacancy on the Supreme Court. Her appointment has yet to be confirmed by the Senate. Democrats argue the process is being rushed and should wait until after the election or indeed until after there's a new president in the White House, if that is to be the case. What's the latest on that story? Can these confirmation hearings go ahead now with a number of senators, for example, having also tested positive for COVID-19? So, yeah, one of the interesting One of the interesting repercussions about uh, the coronavirus outbreak that has emerged in the White House is that um, a number of senators have also been impacted. People will remember the photographs from the event in the White House on September the 26th when Trump unveiled Amy Coney Barrett as his nominee to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, We had people packed in together at that event and several people have now tested positive that were present at, at that event. We, of course, don't know if it was the actual kind of super spreader event, but they have tested positive, including two senators. Um, Tom Tillis of North Carolina and Mike Lee of Utah. He was caught on camera hugging guests at the ceremony. And these two senators are members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. That's the committee of 22 senators who are going to oversee the nomination hearing that's supposed to begin next week. There's also a third senator, incidentally, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, who's also contracted COVID, but he's not on the committee. Now, um, this kind of has raised a conundrum for Mitch McConnell. He instantly 
postponed the the full Senate, the the hundred chamber Senate for two weeks. The business of the I, Senate, but he said just to say Mitch McConnell, the, the majority leader in the Senate. Yeah. Yes, he's the, the top Republican in the Senate, exactly. So he postponed that business for two weeks, but he said that the committee hearings will continue. Um, but Democrats have responded furiously to this. Chuck Schumer, who's the top Democrat on the committee, said, well, if it's too dangerous to have the Senate in session, it is also too dangerous for committee hearings to continue. They have also noted that something like the nomination of a Supreme Court justice is too serious um, to hold virtually. And actually, ironically, McConnell himself was one of the people who resisted introducing virtual voting in the Senate. And now, of course, he's saying, well, maybe we will have virtual voting for this. So that's complicated. Well, he's well capable of changing his mind, as we know. He he is, particularly on this issue. Now, Democrats, with everything to do with this nomination, you know, they're in the minority. They don't have that many options here. They do have one possible tool in their arsenal, though. Um, Technically, under the Senate rules, the 10 Democratic members of the 22 committee, they could demand a quorum vote and say, you know, there must be a minimum number. And if you do the maths, um, they could, if one Democrat just remained to demand that, you could have a situation if the other two have got coronavirus are not there present, that there would not be a majority of committee members, the the rules say, that are actually present to vote. So it's unclear if they're going to invoke that. Maybe not. As As it stands, what we expect is that the committee hearing will begin in some form next Monday. Um, the Judiciary Chairman of the Committee um, is Lindsey Graham, a Trump's very much a Trump ally from South Carolina, and he's in, indicated it will take place on Monday. And then what we would see is then finally there'll be lots of um, um, procedural moves, but eventually we could have a vote in the full Senate of 100 uh, senators on the 22nd of October maybe or maybe that's maybe sorry uh, excuse me that's the committee vote but then later it will be the Senate full vote of the Senate so either way these votes are going to be taking place in the last two weeks before the election and it's still very tight for Mitch McConnell you know he only has a majority of 53 of 100 two of his senators Susan Kane, Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska has said they don't support the idea of voting on a nominee before the election. So that only gives them 51. Now, Vice President Mike Pence could cast a, uh, you know, a casting vote, a tie-break vote here. But, you know, the numbers are getting tight. If another senator was to get very sick, um, or if either these two senators were get, to get very sick, you know, he could be in problems. So, look, I think as well, just to finish this, you know, it, it's quite ironic. This... Um, big, you know, event in the White House, which was one of the biggest events really to take place there since the Republican convention in October, in August, um, was supposed to kind of symbolise Amy Coney Barrett's nomination and her almost certain confirmation by the Senate. And now it's actually turned into allegedly a super spreader event. And for, you know, for the future, it will always be remembered as perhaps the moment where coronavirus began to spread within the White House and infected the president, the first lady and many others. Yeah, and I noticed Mike Pence in the debate last night pointed out that it was an outdoor event and he said that it was held in accordance with the advice given by scientists and so on. But he didn't mention the fact that, of course, they all went inside and had a further sort of reception inside, didn't they? Absolutely. And actually, Chris, that's a classic example of some of the mistruths that were allowed stand last night at the debate. And I really think that's an issue going forward with these debates. You know, nobody picked him up on that. Number one, the moderator should have. But number two, Kamala Harris. There was a few moments I felt she kind of missed obvious... Points now, as I said, they had been told they were, you know, they were separated by glass. They had been told they were given certain minutes for each section, and they did more or less stick to that. Although Mike Pence overran 
um, sometimes in certain questions. Although overall, actually, the speaking time between the two was pretty even. But that's a, that's an example, I think, of how that was let stand. You're absolutely right. We don't know the details, but it seems that guests were mingling before and afterwards inside in the White House. And Mike Pence, there's pictures of him sitting right in the front row during the nomination ceremony outside, and he was there for the event inside too. And while we're talking of the Senate, Suzanne, it's a reminder, of course, that the presidential election on November the 4th is not the only election that day. Um, there are congressional elections and, and local elections and so on. Just in terms of the congressional elections picture, can you give us an overview of what things are looking like there? Yeah, it's very important to keep that in mind, Chris, that, yeah, as you say, on November the 3rd, it's not just the two presidential candidates who are on the ballot. So the 435 seats in the House of Representatives are up and also a third of the Senate seats. So people around the country will be voting for their local senators, the local Congress uh, representatives, etc. And I think since the diagnosis of Donald Trump and coronavirus and his handling of that, I think there's a real worry now among a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill about how this is going to impact their own election chances. So, um, you know, the worried, the polls are kind of go, really going against Trump at the moment. They're worried about maybe a Democratic wave of some kind here. And um, so we saw that in 2018, the midterm elections, where an anti-Trump vote um, allowed the House to switch back to Democratic control. And a lot of the suburbs I mentioned, you know, I'm here in Phoenix, as I mentioned, but around the country, a lot of those suburban uh, seats went Democrat around Philadelphia, for example. You know, Atlanta is is now difficult territory in Georgia for Republicans. So there's a worry about that. Um, Now, there's a a couple of places where they actually, Republicans might do well because of local concerns, but generally, you know, it looks like... um, the House will remain in Democratic hands in the next term. Then we have the Senate, and that's going to be, that's more closely fought in a sense. As I mentioned there, the majority, Republicans have a 53 majority. But there's a couple of races here I think there could be in trouble in. Um, So Arizona, where I am now, where I've just arrived, that's a very interesting one to watch because there's going to be a, there's a big Democratic move now to win a Senate seat here. When John McCain died, um, a Republican, Martha McSally, was appointed to fill his seat. She had already ran for the Senate seat in the midterm elections and didn't win. Um, she was then appointed and now um, Mark Kelly, he's an astronaut, but he's also the husband of Gabby Giffords, the Arizona congresswoman who was shot in the head about 10 years ago now. Um, and he is mounting a huge uh, Senate campaign down here in Arizona and Democrats think he might win this. So that's one seat that's important. Uh, Montana, uh, Republicans could lose there. Uh, North Carolina, Tom Tillis, who I mentioned there, who got one of the senators got coronavirus. He's in his own battle in North Carolina. I hope to visit there in the next few weeks, but very interesting there because the Democratic candidate has got in, invo- involved in a personal scandal about texting a woman who wasn't his wife. So that's become a very interesting Senate race in North Carolina. And the other Senate race uh, that Republicans may lose is Susan Collins's seat in Maine. Susan Collins has been in the Senate for a long time, representing Maine, a state she has lived in her whole life, or her family has been there. But I think she's a really good example of how support for Donald Trump, you know, does not translate well in all states. It does in some states. It does in states like Alabama, but not in somewhere like Maine. And um, she has had a continual difficulty in trying to thread the needle between being a Republican and being a Republican who can stand up to Donald Trump because he's not particularly popular in Maine. A classic example being, as I just mentioned, the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. What may happen with her is she keeps nobody happy. You know, she doesn't keep the Republican, the hardcore Republicans in her state happy, and she definitely doesn't keep the Democrat swing voters happy. So she is in uh, for a big battle there. Um, Sarah Gideon, a Democratic candidate, very, very um, 
she's well known locally. She's had state positions at the State Assembly. She is um, taking on Susan Collins for that seat. So that's going to be a very important strand of election day, November the 3rd, because obviously whoever is elected, whoever wins this presidential election, like always in American politics, what they get done, their agenda, etc., will depend on the shape of Congress. And if, for example, Joe Biden was to win and he has a democratically controlled House and Senate, um, this would be a huge boost for him as he tries to kind of make his stamp as, as a new president. Well, well, Suzanne, lots to chew over there. Thanks a lot for that overview and good luck on your travels over the coming days of the campaign. And we should mention here as well that in addition to her regular reports and analysis, Suzanne's daily election diary will begin on irishtimes.com next Monday. That's all for this week. For more on this and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. 